This is a Kiwi original. Today on the show, I speak with Chris Holt about their office furniture company, Accent Group. Originally, office furniture was one of many products in the range in the 1990s. And when they realized they could specialize in this, they built a solid line of business in office furniture. You may not have heard of Accent because they've never sold direct and only sold branded product from 2012. 1,800 desks and cabinetry supplied to a client, Accent has serious skills at scale. 50 plus employees, there's some excellent lessons in here about commitment to clients and keeping deadlines. In the second half of the episode, Chris is joined by his son, Ronnie Holt, who shares what he's working on with the team to bond the operations team with the sales team, a ongoing struggle for any business. We also get a little insight into the entrepreneurial operating system, EOS, that is helping Accent with alignment. There's a lot of humility and uh, understatedness in this interview, but to be very clear, these guys know what they're doing and have built a solid business from Wellsford that is building out the office environment of New Zealand. Let's take a listen. Okay, so 1997, making furniture for offices or furniture for residential what was the what were the first pieces you were making back then well even prior to starting we bought a little planter box business for garden planters made out of tantalized timber mainly to keep my young family off the street um and we made a lot of toy trucks and sold them as well. So it was prior to starting out on my own. Um, when we started out on my own, we were making laundry cabinets for the um, plumbing distributors out of MDF and Malamine. And then we were making uh, one-off articles for reception areas and that sort of thing. Um, and the planter boxes, of course, which we only kept at for another year or two as we morphed into doing office furniture again. So the planter boxes, the wooden toys, those laundry, uh, the, the boxes for the, the sinks, that gave you products that you could sell for cash that then, did you want to go to that next level initially of, of getting into office furniture or was it more around building uh, building products out of timber? Well, my intentions when I left my previous employee, which had been making office furniture, I'd worked for 21 years for a very good employer. Um, it was time for a change, and I had that planter box business, and my focus was to be on making outdoor products, even outdoor furniture. Um, but we found a demand for office furniture outside of what I was doing with my previous boss. I couldn't go taking his work away. Um, and we grew from that. And we are also at that point making handles, timber handles for kitchens and office furniture, so the solid timber bow handles and that sort of thing, and components that went into metal ends of handles and that 
type of product. So this is in the early 2000s? Yep, well just prior to 2000 all that was happening. We Probably by 2000 we were in the office furniture environment well and truly. What, uh, what type of office spaces were around there? Were these the you know, skyscrapers in Wellington and Auckland getting built or were they you know, retrofitting existing offices that were single level? Um, both. Both. Um, we did a job for um, the reception area of Merrill Lynch, I think, on the 39th floor of the ASB building. One of the first jobs I did on my own, um, which had stainless steel and veneer and glass and very high-end product in it. Um, L'Oreal did a massive boardroom table for them, six and a half metres long, with veneers, big solid timber clashings, all that type of product. That's where we started and then we did a range of office furniture with a timber edge specifically for one client, which and then it just grew from there really. What was it like in those early days when you, know, you got to, to bid on that type of work with L'Oreal or Merrill Lynch and then they came back after you put the proposal together and said, Chris, we want you to have the work. Well, I, I wasn't dealing directly with them. I was dealing with, an, with our, our customer who was dealing with those end users. Um, yeah, pretty awesome to get jobs of that value so early on in my business life. So the, if I understand correctly there, the... Um, a lot of people in New Zealand may not have heard of Accent because you were dealing through another layer. The, the resellers actually are the ones talking to Merrill Lynch or L'Oreal. You're manufacturing the product, but it might be called something completely different when it gets to the customer. Is that right? Yes, so we've always, we've never sold directly to the end user and to this day we still don't. Um, from up until 2012 probably, we were just contract manufacturers making products for other people, pretty much apart from one or two little brands of our own. Um, in 2012 we made a shift to do branded product, design and build and sell to resellers. So before that it was, if somebody wanted something, whatever it was, we could make it, we made it big or small. I think our biggest contract of making components would have been for an 1800 desk job Wow! and cabinetry to go with it. And so from 2012 you take a more product centric view rather than uh, building bespoke for a particular customer. Would some of those products, are those the ones on your website like the, the energy furniture system, the balance, the summit, are those the, the types of um, systems yep. that you started looking to create under your own Accent brand? Yeah, that's correct. Those are the type of things. We still do do um, contract furniture manufacturing, but a much smaller percentage obviously of our business. We still like to do that. We have some very good customers, many years of working with them, um, 23 years with some of them. So, so it works. You've been in the business for some time. They are relying on your manufacturing excellence. Um, what has the 
a build of some of these products contributed since 2012, being able to you know, create your own product lines? How has that influenced the, the manufacturing process? I think it's, it's given us a much wider customer base, obviously, than what we had before. Whereas with contract manufacturing, you've got very loyal, small number of people that you have to look after. Um, but it's given us the scope to build the business into a much bigger size and much more consistent flow of product going through the plant, which is obviously a good thing to have rather than contract manufacturing is stop and start, very definitive lead times, etc. So there's quite a big demand on your labour for that type of product. So it's good to have the other stuff happening all the time and keeping the whole, whole plant busy all the time. That's interesting. So you, um, the benefit of going to a product-based approach is you can increase your utilisation of manufacturing because you're always going to need future stock of those products. And it, does it smooth out then some of the peaks and troughs of contract manufacturing where you, you might need it all for a deadline and then there's a quiet space? Yeah, we probably manage our labour a lot better than we did back in those days, but in saying that, we don't normally manufacture for stock. We manufacture for someone to order something. Someone wants to order a, a standard line product, we will make that within a certain given time. Um, some of our desks, electric desks, where we have stock electric bases and things, they we just manufacture the top and we can dispatch that the next day. As long as it's in a standard range of colours, but we can make it to any size that the customer wants, which is a little bit unique. What are some of the things as a, a reseller that you have to be uh, or should be mindful of to make your job go more smoothly? Well, number one thing for the reseller is that we do what we say we're going to do. And that's whole business really has been built on promise of delivery. We say what we're going to do when we say we're going to do it, and that's what's built the business over the years. And it's still as important today as it was when we were a one-man band. And if it doesn't, if that doesn't happen, we're in trouble and our client is in trouble because it stuffs up their customer. So it's that's the most critical thing to making this place work. How does that um, that promise, how does that, how would you see that on a day-to-day -day basis and you know, someone working behind here in your office right now or on the manufacturing floor downstairs? What, um, what does that attitude bring? Um, it brings a sense of urgency and a sense of committal to your job. Um, no one likes to see failure and no one comes to work to fail intentionally and we don't want to set our staff up to fail by being unreasonable or making promises that we can't keep. So we're inclined to disappoint our customer at the front end. If they ring up and say we want 50 of these in two weeks, we do our homework, we know that we can't do that within two weeks, we will tell them we can't do it within two weeks, but we'll give them options. We can do it in this colour in one week or we can do we can do it in three weeks for and what you want your spec or we work with the customer very closely to get the net result that's required. So it sounds like you're pretty clear in knowing what your capability is, knowing what the, the limits are 
and then being clear on that with resellers as your customers so that you're setting expectations up front so that they know that they're going to be successful because they can trust what you're saying, basically. Yep, absolutely. That's that's how the business has been built, and we just try to keep that going through the ranks as we hand over more responsibility to other staff, and they do get it because it's working. <laughs> how many have you got working here at Accent now? I think we're around 50... Five, somewhere in that vicinity, 55, of which we have four temps at the moment. But we employ a diverse range of nationalities yeah. here. It's very good. And what does it take as a, if you're looking for a career that relies on that, that precision, skill, transparency, um, that cabinet making skills, um, what are the types of, of people that you look to attract? Um, we think that if people have got an attitude, a right attitude, we can do anything with them. The people that don't have the right attitude, they don't last here because they just fall out. They fall by the way. It's just not, they don't fit. Um, you get someone with the right attitude. We have a operations manager here who came to us in the GFC. He'd just come out of university, he's ready for a banking career. Couldn't get one, of course, at that time. And he put himself into labour hire, needed a job. He started off working night shift here, running a CNC. Today, 10 years later, he's our operations manager. Yeah. So as I say, if you've got the right attitude, we can do anything with you. That attitude's key, isn't it? And Absolutely. The, the ability or willingness to be humble and maybe do something that's different from what you, you hope to do. But what you're really doing is you're laying the foundations of critical jobs, like understanding how to use a CNC machine at midnight mm. uh, to keep those jobs going. Yeah. If they don't have the right attitude, you'll find that there's other things underlying that, and that's dishonesty and things like that, which don't fit, don't fit our culture. So on a day-to-day -day basis now, Chris, you're obviously not on the tools in the, in the manufacturing side. Do, do you ever miss it? Do you ever go down there and think, actually, hey, I want to get back on it? That looks really interesting. Oh, obviously, I'd love to be able to do it all, but I wouldn't. The machinery we have down there now, I wouldn't even know how to turn it on. I wouldn't know how to program it up here first. So when that first happened, I felt in quite a big vacuum because I couldn't go and do something that I wanted to do to build for my own house or whatever. I forget someone else to do it. So that bit is probably a little bit frustrating, but I don't mind it at all now. I'd much rather get someone else that's familiar with it and do it a lot faster than me because they know what they're doing. Um, yeah, no, it's not a problem. And then um, outside of work, do you still do the, the cabinet making by hand? Have you got some, some hobbies that, that keep you on the tools or is that something now that um, you kind of you've left behind? Um, I still enjoy working with timber and stuff, and I do a lot of projects around the place, charity projects, go and help my sons on their houses or whatever they're doing, or anybody else that needs all sorts of things. I've got quite a lot of building background as well from over the years, so I enjoy putting on the builder's apron and getting into it. I do a lot of, spend a lot of time gardening on community projects and things like that. 
And final question, where's next for Accent? We're in 2021 now. We've got the whole year ahead of us. Uh, I'm sure after the, the year we, we had last year, uh, there's probably some, some opportunities and some challenges with that. What's, um, where are you looking to the future? Well, for this year, we're looking to regain what we lost last year, get up to the sales targets that we missed in 2020. Um, just keep on going. Just keep going. You know? Don't look back, look ahead and see what the future holds by just getting into it. New Zealand-made Kiwi trademark is relied upon by over 1,500 New Zealand businesses to gain a market origin advantage in the markets they operate, both domestically and internationally. Check to see if the good service or software that you make is eligible at buynz.org.nz. I guess on the average week, I mean, the main thing I'm focusing on at the moment is working with the team, trying to um, make sure we get stuff right, and I guess bond, bond the operations team and the sales team together, which has been a challenge. If we take our culture from many years back to what we're trying to achieve now and build that uni unity, I guess, really through the team. Um, we've just recently launched out into a program called EOS, which is Entrepreneur Operating System, which was referred to us by one of our friends. And that's just helped bring alignment, I guess, between all the different departments. So it's called Entrepreneurial Operating Systems, System. EOS. Yeah. And it helps with removing those barriers, the silos between the sales part of the organization yeah. and the, the build, the operational part of that. I right? guess what it's, the main part of it is you start off with what they call a VTO, which is a Vision Traction Organizer. So you're getting your vision out of your head, so you're getting that, your leadership team are aligned to that for starters. Mm -hmm. um, so you're getting everyone, which is probably inherent in a family business, is dad and the boys' thoughts of where the business is going out on a piece of paper. So that the guys that are actually executing in your leadership team understand what you're thinking. While everyone's good at mind reading, the mind reading's not very accurate. <laughs> um, so just getting alignment of where we're going, we just recently had an off-site for a quarterly plan, you know, where we're going to be in three years' time, five years' time, what's our one-year picture, who's doing what to achieve that, and giving us all our areas of accountability. So is one person accountable for each thing. So I guess my main one at the moment is working with HR and systems to make sure the team have got what they need to be able to do their jobs right. So the people, the processes, and the alignment, products. the products that you make. Um, what is the, the vision for Accent? What is that, uh, that vision that's come from the family and, and from the team? I guess what, I guess our passion really, um, as owners of the businesses, we like to exceed people's expectations, but the only way to do that is through teamwork. So that's really our, what we've managed to distill down as our passion for the business is exceeding expectations through teamwork. Um, do we do it? Exceed expectations? Not every time, but that's where we want to be. So that A, 
customers are happy. They don't get bad job. Suppliers are happy with us. The staff are happy. Um, everyone has a good experience, however they interact with Accent. And, I mean, community, wider community, which is probably always one of Dad's key principles he's drilled into us as giving. So we like to give back to the community. Many charities throughout the country will give to, including not just money, but time. So keeps us busy, inside working, outside, I guess. That motivator of being able to give back to people. So there's a couple of different areas there to, to talk about. One is the, the giving and the, the community side of it, which we'll come on to. And then the other one is that, that alignment of the processes so that you're exceeding expectations. Um, do you set quite, uh, quite high expectations for yourself internally? Like, is it, is it okay to fail because you are setting these very high standards? Yeah, I mean, we don't mind if you fail. I guess we get really annoyed with ourselves if we fail multiple times on the same problem. <laughs> but um, Dad's, I guess, another thing is he's always told us that you can, he'd give you a rope to try something. If you did fail, you need to learn from it. And so I guess that's probably what we try to do internally is give people rope. And I guess it gives you the opportunity for a coaching session if something does go a bit wrong. You can sit down and go through it with that person or next time you see something similar arising, you've got the opportunity to teach. And by teaching, I guess you learn yourself as well. So it becomes win-win for everyone. That's great because what you're doing there is you're creating that space for failure to be okay, which creates a, a much better learning lesson than success because success could have been from anyone, not necessarily just the one individual. Whereas failure, it, it's much more easy to locate the machine, the process, the person. Uh, and once that's happened, you're actually creating wisdom, which is where intellectual property comes from and, and talent. Yeah, I guess one of the things that we've had um, Intent Group coming here as a lean consultants for quite a few years now. That's probably one of the learns I guess they've taught us is they actually go for the process first. Don't go for the people. The people are the obvious sign of what's gone wrong but like Dad was saying, what's the process that you've given them to work in that's given them the ability to screw it up so to speak. But you can't you can't blame the person for the problem if you haven't got the process right. In saying that, we've got a lot of work to do on our processes, but they are getting better. What would be an example for um, you know, the start to finish process when you're making one of these furniture systems? I mean, how, how complex does it get? Um, relatively complex. I guess it depends where you're going. For instance, at Grid 40, product there with the aluminium frames well we've set standards in place for that of what the product is designing it i mean there's a lot of things to think about and because hey we're based in wellsford so what doesn't come naturally to us thinking about is earthquake zones so when you start selling that product to someone in wellington someone in christchurch now it might be a question that pops up you've never thought about um, and then how's the product put together, what's all the details, 
So we have changed one of our guys who's always been in products development space. He's always had a passion for it, so he's full-time on there now. Um, and what we're wanting to do is actually get the detail of the products right before it goes to the plant. Um, right down to the nuts and bolts, because that's the piece that causes problems when it gets on site. So there's, I guess when we're designing products, some people ask us who's the product designer. We just say anyone, because no idea is a silly idea. And some of the best ideas, even in the last couple of weeks, have come from someone on the on the factory floor, and you're looking at a product, and you're looking at a picture, and they say, well, that's pretty easy, you just do this. And so everyone's involved in product development, and I guess a bit of the Kiwi mentality, number eight, why, how can you do it? Mm-hmm. Keep it simple. Um, doesn't have to be complex, but a lot of people find making the complex simple hard, whereas I guess it comes from Dad's teaching of how to make things simply. It doesn't have to be as complex as what it looks like, if that makes sense. You've hit on something really uh, interesting in that it's actually quite hard to make something simple. It's complex. It's difficult because it requires you to go through all those other steps where um, it's unnecessarily complex or it's got more pieces than it needs or um, refining back to the minimum but, but not too far. Um, mm. There's an edge that you've got to reach, but you've got to go over the edge to know where the edge is. And when you go over it, that's where failure occurs. And um, you're talking about the, the product designer, there's no one particular product designer you know, it takes 99 bad ideas to surface the one excellent idea sometimes. And it, you know, having a space where you can have those ideas freely means you're more likely to get the 100th idea. Yeah. Might have been Winston Churchill that said, if you want me to speak for two hours, I can start in 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I can give you 10 minutes, but just give me two hours to prepare for it. But I think it's probably our team here, we mightn't try and be the fastest on the block, but do make sure it will be right. Just probably a bit of our natural reserve nature. Dad has been referred to as the hawk's eye by the guys (laughs) on the floor, so they know that he's got an eye for detail. I guess that's probably the culture we want to keep up, is keep that eye for detail in finesse while making it simple. If we were to be walking through the factory, what are some of the things that you know, your dad, Chris, would pick up or, or maybe you would pick up that, that no one else would see, even someone maybe working on it, um, that's immediately obvious? Um, first one that springs to mind would be the edging, the detail to the edging on the product. So this one here's a, it's just got a sanded edge, but PVC edging. So that's a two mil PVC banding that goes on a lot of tops. Um, when we first started selling our own branded products to customers, that was some of the feedback we got from installers quite quickly was, this is the best edging we've ever seen, which to us was just normal. But I guess the detail to how the corners finished nice and round, smooth, it's just the finishing touch that makes a difference to 
whether your product's A1 or B. And that's definitely one of the things that you'll hear Dad talking about is the detail on the edging or someone joining a top. You know, you can see that it's just not quite perfect. Those are probably two things that come to mind straight away. That is the fine detail that ends up in your furniture looking good and lasting, I guess. And in terms of, you know, your office here, it's all fitted out by accent. So um, how do you, when you're working with uh, or through resellers, uh, who comes up with the, the end design uh, that you then have to manufacture the, the components for? Is that in partnership or is that sometimes all with the reseller and they just provide you uh, an equipment list? Depending on how the reseller's working is, if it's architect design in spec, we'd just work off that. Um, if we were helping one of our resellers to fit out the office, we would often do a floor plan for them, put the furniture in, provide them floor plans, 3D visualisation so the customer can see what they're going to get and that could be include their branding and logos in it to give them that personalised feel so they can see what they're going to get before it arrives. So you can actually do the manufacturing and add branding of the resellers into the product before it goes to the end customer? Yeah, I was more thinking of when we're actually presenting the products at the sales stage mm -hmm. so they can get a full 3D layout showing how it could look if they want to have their branding on the office wall for instance or on the front ah, of a reception counter. Right. They might want a bank of lockers and they might want to put their colours through the doors or something like that. So I guess we can provide it, you know, we can do our own painting in-house, so if you want to have your lockers in every second or third door and your specific colour branding, as long as we've got the colour, we can do it. So it can add that personalisation for not a huge cost to the end user and give, I guess, really help their company culture. Because that's a big difference, isn't it, after the, the 2020 we've had, is that people are working differently. There's a lot of more people working from home. Uh, the office environment is changing. You know, some people are coming into the office less or using the office for, for different purposes. Um, are you seeing anything on the, from the manufacturing side of some, any changes, or is your, the types of uh, furniture systems that you already provide um, helping solve that problem? I guess our collaboration products have probably been a part where we've been growing and we've always tried to offer that in recent years. Um, you know, what we are seeing is some offices who may have pre-COVID been going to do a big office fit out full of desks mm. will now come along and have a look at um, collaboration products. So bigger tables, how can they have them so people can hot desk, move around, meeting spaces. They may not actually come into the office for that desk work, or few might, so the, may say the ratio may change a bit. But I guess keeping close to the customers, what we're trying to do to figure out what those changes are going to be, and being able to adapt quickly when they do come up with an idea. I remember one of the first jobs we got with one of our new customers we were the only one that actually did what the architect spec was. Multiple companies put in their products, but there was a particular screen partition to go between the desks, 
was made out of steel and had a certain pattern on it. And we went to that level of detail to get it right. Yes, we might have been doing a few funny things like driving around Auckland chasing the hunk of steel and delivering it to powder coaters and picking it up and bringing it back and getting it right and taking it down, delivering the setup. But that was a piece that actually won the contract and the customer got what they wanted. It was all done through a reseller, that one, which all our projects are. And saying that the architect still knew the manufacturer behind it, so we don't try and promote our brand outside to end users or to architects. Yeah, we stick to our knitting of going through a reseller channel. Even though we have friends and family that come along and want us to deal directly with them, we still put it back through a reseller to keep the borders clear, keep the trust levels up between us and our resellers. What I'm hearing here is that um, even though um, that end customer may not see your brand, your brand is in the details. It's in the the specific nature of what you do, the the customization, the attention to detail. Would that be right? So with a with the a, a trained eye, you could pick out your furniture even without seeing the brand on it. Yeah, I believe so. And that's some of the reports you get back. Um, is that people just do know whose the product is, even though it's not branded. Hmm. Now, I haven't forgotten about the community side. I know I said that much earlier <laughs> on, and, and then we, we went down a rabbit hole in a, in a different direction. Uh, so let's talk about the, the community side and um, giving back, and why is that important to Accent? I don't know quite how to describe it, really. I guess it's a satisfaction from giving. Um, you know you're doing something for someone else. I guess it's probably reciprocal from all the help that people have given us over the years. I guess is where it comes from. I mean, we've, like Dad was saying, we've had plenty of mentors, and one of them is an older man now. He's still interested. He still likes to see how you're doing every month. He's invested in the company. 2010, I remember him investing quite heavily. And all through those tough years, he would keep telling Dad that, I believe you're going to make it. And I guess that's probably one of the confidence that you get given from someone that's looking in inside out. And I guess it's those kind of people that just give, that give you the motivation to, why not do the same? They've given you so much help, why not pass what you can on? And it's not necessarily money. It could be just doing simple tasks for someone else, giving your time up to help in a local charity, a local school project, anything. I don't know if you've heard of RRT, no, I haven't. RRT. RRT, Rapid Relief Team. So it's a, a global company or global organisation and that's giving back to people in need. So get involved with companies like that. Charitable organisations, um, you may have seen them, you'll see them a little bit on LinkedIn and in the, in the news. Um, a big thing that we, I mean I just help out a little bit on it, but a little big thing that's been happening over the past year and a half has been um, food boxes, mm. so they've been supplying them through the New Zealand police and it gives the police officer something to take into families in need, so they may go into difficult situations, they may find children with no food or family without food, without money, hopeless situation, and being able to 
A, from our business perspective, we give money to that charity so that they can provide that to people and then spare time, you're helping them as well. So that's the kind of thing I guess we like to be able to do. It's a great message. Give because of giving. Mm. It's satisfying. Mm. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate our chat uh, and for you being so honest with sharing the accent story and talking about the furniture designs. I think there's a lot to be learned there for a reseller um, from what you've said today, Ronnie, and I think um, you should be very proud of the business that you're contributing to and a part of. Yep. It's a great team we've got and um, it's the only way you can do it. <laughs> and it's all New Zealand manufacturing based here in Wellsford. Yep, the centre of the earth. That's it for another episode of A Kiwi Original. Remember to subscribe on the podcast or on YouTube to receive the next episode. If you got value from this episode, please share it with someone you think could benefit. See you next time. One of the big things we had to write from this that was, we're going to push that it's New Zealand made. New Zealand made carries a lot of weight outside New Zealand. People don't realise that. Well, you're by New Zealand and uh, we were really motivated by your professionalism at the outset when we first contacted you and that gave us the confidence to reach out to the rest of the New Zealand community to support this. We'll get two, three, four, five inquiries every day from people. And, and their only question is, are your products made in New Zealand? You know, they don't want to know anything else. We knew there was demand in the market for a New Zealand-made product, firstly, a natural New Zealand-made product. We have got New Zealand made. That was the first thing I signed up to. I was really proud of that. And um, you were very welcoming. So thank you, Ron. I think it's very, very important to sell in New Zealand as a New Zealand-made product. Originally, we were having to import components from overseas. It wasn't until we shifted to our carbon fiber model that we were able to say that the product was made in New Zealand. And that was a huge, it was sort of a big goal for me. I wanted to have complete control over the manufacturing of it. Definitely it's something that we've been belonged to right from the beginning and it just put trust, especially New Zealanders, into our product. We've noticed recently people have become so much more discerning about they will up front and say to you, is it really made here? And not have to rely on other countries and important components, especially in times like these, I'd, I'd, be, I'd have no stock. Being able to front up to that and show your logo and say, well, you know, I don't think a lot of people understand that you have to have a license to show that logo. We have also New Zealand made on some of the other brands selling over overseas. And it's something that people are looking for. The little triangle has been a part of our brand for a long time. Is that an investment or is it a cost? Yeah, can, we, can we spend it given what's going on? No, it's actually good value for us. Yeah, we, we are a Kiwi company. We are proud of Kiwis. It instantly had a, a fruitful conversation. 
without any dancing around or holding back or everything came out and that was that was part of the why it was so invaluable and so the best way to do that is to, to join the find the making fan right so i don't you will see on any of my social media stuff like yeah you know, i put the bodies in a made logo well, i'm classed on everything i can pass it on but just being able to prove to people that it is New Zealand made and that we've got a story, that's great. You know, pretty proud to be able to do that.